We, we looked at the book of Esther, and we discovered that through the entire book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned once. Well, you are in luck because this morning we are in the book of Job, and God's name is all over the pages. And it is, I, I, I hope and I pray that by the time you leave this morning, your God will be bigger. I, I, I know we've been going through these books and we've been grappling over the, the last few months with, with the 14 books of, of the historical books of the Bible. And, and we've been doing so, and it covers and spans over 4,000 years. And now we're, we're getting ready to, to look at the prophetic books, which are quite exciting. It talks about how God is working in the midst of the people in those times and looks ahead to the future promises and truths that are to come. But in between are the five books of the wisdom and poetry, which is where we find ourselves today. And that first book is the book of Job. I, I, we've been going through in order, so I know some of you have, have been going along with me and reading those books each week. Uh, I tell you what, reading Job this week was was an awe-inspiring read. And, and next week is Psalms. How many of you are going to read through the Psalms next week? I am. <laughs> no hands. Oh, man. Well, we're, we're looking at these, these books of, of wisdom and poetry, and unlike the historical books, as, as we look at the historical books... The poetical books do not advance the story or the narrative of the nation of Israel. However, they go deep into the crucial questions about pain, about God, wisdom, life, love. And as we look at them, we, we find these books are not for a specific time, but very relevant then and now. If not even more so. Because as we read these, these books of, of wisdom and poetry, we are reading them understanding that we now have the opportunity to engage in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell us. So as we read these books of wisdom and poetry, to a certain extent, it's even deeper and I know someone said they're not much into poetry and all I will tell you as we read through these books as we look at them it is that these words of poetry that that show us the depths of the heart of our God Job I, I feel is is a wonderful study 
as, as we begin this, this journey through these five books. Because in the book of Job, we're going to look at pain. We're going to consider suffering. We're going to look at the things of life, God, and wisdom. And we're going to see some deep waters into the depths of the heart of our God. I love that we don't embrace the, these books of poetry until we have a reference for the history of Israel. The history of the Old Testament and God. And now we get to see how God is engaging in these powerful books. I want us to consider pain and suffering. As we think about pain and suffering, you're like, how many times are you going to say that? Well, enough times for you to realize that you're not the only one who goes through it. Because as we sit here today, each one of us has dealt with that. And I want us to begin with a right perspective concerning pain and suffering. And for that, we go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter writes this. Look with me in verse 21. I'm, you know what's really hard is when you preach through a book of the Bible it's really hard to find the highlight that you have. 21, there it is. Listen to what he says. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. I want to pause right there. Jesus Christ suffered. Don't forget that as we go through Job this morning. Suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in him, in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Keep that in mind as we look at Job this morning. Pain and stuff, suffering. The, the fingers of pain and the grip of suffering has, has captured and had its grip on each one of us here this morning to different extents. And I don't presume to understand where you have been, 
the suffering you have gone through, nor should you presume to know what I have gone through. But I don't want us to look to ourselves. I don't want us to look to me. I don't even really want us to look to Job. This morning, I want us to look to our God. Countless books have been written on the subject of pain and suffering. Just go to Amazon Bookstore and see, and you can find countless titles. Grappling with it. Dealing with it. There's more vices out there that have been instituted trying to deal with pain and suffering. Some here this morning may be struggling even with those vices. Over the centuries, countless reasons have been given for why we suffer. Why pain is there. Trying to explain. In our struggle with it, we are very quick to go and, and toss blame. Blame somehow makes us feel better because then we can pinpoint a reason for that pain, for that suffering. Sometimes that blame is even tossed at God. We find that our pain and suffering, our grief, our sorrow stirs up emotion. How many have struggled with all the emotions that grief and suffering and pain bring? A few of you. Wow. The rest of you really don't need this message. That's great. See, pain tends to create an emotion within us that tends to swallow us up. We, we deal and struggle with anger and bitterness. We try to work out in our hearts justification for it. There's the emotion of hopelessness and grief. And some even resort to the emotion of just numbness. They would rather be numb than to deal with the pain and suffering. Judging by the faces, some of you can relate. And then there's Satan, Satan. Do you realize his very name, Satan, it means the accuser? And he uses pain and suffering and he thrives on our pain. He thrives on the suffering that we go through. He uses it as a cruel and wicked vice. And he uses it to cause mankind to turn against God, to question God, to lash out. And in that emotion, we, we go and we accuse God of what is occurring in our lives. The emotion that pain and suffering brings often causes us to fail to see the truths of Scripture. 
the emotion is overwhelming. And therefore, we fail to see what God has given us. We begin to make assumptions. And as we begin to look at, at the book of Job this morning, this is where we find Job. This is where we find the individuals as they are grappling with pain. They're grappling with suffering, asking questions, making assumptions. Yet in this book, we will see God respond. God will respond in righteous indignation. He will respond in, in absolute truth and wisdom. It will be fueled by His love, His majesty, His mercy, and His grace. And I can't wait to get you to God's response. But first, we have to grapple with what is occurring Consider the overview of, of Job here for, for just a moment. Job is broken up into four distinct parts. The poetry often will have different parts as we look at it. And the book of Job has that. The first part is, is that, that narrative. And truth be told, that opening narrative creates for us, the reader, a, a dilemma. And as we, we read that, we get a perspective that Job and his friends will not have. But nonetheless, there is a great dilemma that even we are faced with. In section, section 2, we begin this cycle of, of the discussion between Job and his friends. It's rather interesting to look at those discussions, debates, there's many questions, there's many assumptions made in this, and not all of them are right, which God will address at the end. In fact, God has some choice things to say about his friends. In the third section, this is my favorite section, by the way, this is where God speaks. God comes on scene and he says, now I'm going to talk. Everybody else has had chapters and chapters and chapters of talking. You guys have gone around in circles. I'm going to talk. And it is amazing when God questions us. When God questions Job. When God speaks of himself. And truth be told, we get a picture of God in this book like none other. The last section deals with God getting the final word. Don't you love that God always gets the final word? And, and we see it here in a beautiful way. And, and we don't get the question answered. Throughout the entire book, the question is why? You can read every single chapter of Job and not find the answer to why. Spoiler alert. God doesn't answer that. But the answer He gives is far more powerful, and we're going to see that today. Let's, let's begin today with, with looking at this dilemma. 
The dilemma of Job begins in chapter 1, and we find Job is, well, he's an amazing man of integrity. Look at this. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, we, f- we find an amazing description of this man. There was a man in the land of Uz. That would be a cool place to be from. I, I don't know. I think that would just be from, where are you from, Uz? Oh, cool. Actually, we find that, that Job is probably a counterpart in the time of the patriarchs living in the time of Abraham and, and those guys at some point around there. But a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What a description. What a man. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. He's a family man. We read on in those verses and we discover that that Job has great, great wealth. In fact, he's probably one of the most wealthy individuals in the world, for sure, in that region. God has blessed him abundantly. We read that he is an amazing father. His prayer life, his care and concern for their spiritual well-being is absolutely amazing. And we see this of this this man, but here comes the dilemma. We see this man whose life is great, his children are great, his fathering is great, his blessings are abundant, and he is an amazing man of integrity. And then verse 6 happens. Look at verse 6. It says, Now, there was a day, When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, Satan, the accuser, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you, poor Job, have you, Considered my servant Job? First of all, I never want God to say that to Satan about me. Have you considered Jed down there? We get a glimpse that Job will not see, his friends will not see. Look what happens. For there is no one like him on earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, (laughs) Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. 
How many of you, that, that creates a dilemma in your mind? It, it does mine. And I have read, I have studied, I have looked at the scriptures, I've studied Job, and it still creates a dilemma for me. God, why would you do that? Why? Satan has a heyday. Satan takes everything Job has. In one day, all his livestock, his possessions, his buildings are burned to the ground, destroyed, annihilated. In one day, all his servants, except for one to, read, to give the message, are killed. In one day, all his children die. I don't know about you, but that would be a bad day for me. And I don't know how I would handle that grief, that pain, that suffering. It's interesting that Satan takes everything except his wife. We'll look at her in just a moment. Think for a moment your response on that day. How would you respond? How did Job respond? Well, when we look at verse 20, we see his response. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. See, I think we have a wrong idea of worship. We want air condition. We want comfortable seats. We want musicians that never make a mistake. We want a sound system that's perfect. Job, in the midst of this, worships. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Take away the air conditioning, take away the soft seats, and guess what? Worship becomes real. And we praise God. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Satan's not satisfied. He never is, by the way. He is never satisfied. Satan comes back to God, and we, we see in, in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Even after all of that, folks, Satan answered, The Lord said, at the end, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. <laughs> yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And the dilemma is still there. And we go, God, why? How many of you are wondering why right now? I can't read this and not ask why. Why? And Satan went from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a, uh, a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. What do you think his response is now? Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's what she said. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to encourage, just as a side note, one phrase here. I want to encourage spouses in here. Husbands and wives. You have the greatest opportunity to strengthen your spouse in their relationship with the Lord, like none other, you also have the greatest opportunity to tear it down. You choose. Chapter ends with Job's friends coming. They sit with him for seven days and they're silent. Had Job's friends done that and been left it at that, they would have been labeled the greatest friends in all the universe. But then in chapter 3, they speak. I, I want to caution, there are many in our church going through pain and suffering. Be careful the words you say. Sometimes it's best just to shut up and be there. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zephor. Zephor, I don't know. The problem is, the question comes to the surface, why? And this is where that debate cycle happens. It goes for chapters and chapters. We are not going to go through all of the debates that they have. I'll give you a summary, though. Look at this real quick. The way it goes, and there's three different cycles of this. 
My goodness, give Job a hug, say you're praying for him and stay quiet. But no, Job expresses his pain. So Eliphaz goes ahead and he says, here's my advice. I think you're sinning. That's always encouraging. Job responds, I'm innocent. Bildad, you are a sinner. Job responds, Zophar, what sin have you done? I mean, it's one punch after another. And they go and they try to grapple with this reason why They look at things like God's justice and all of that. Job finally responds the last time and it starts another cycle. It's very discouraging to read at certain points. And the problem is, is their arguments, their discussion, this cycle is based off of assumptions. They make some very wrong assumptions and then the debate occurs around those assumptions. They go and determine that man's actions equal God's response. God is a karma God. You don't see that in Scripture. To think that we can manipulate God by what we do or don't do? How small is your God? But they grapple with the questions... And somehow they think that good lives will equal God's blessing. Remember Peter? Jesus, no sin. No reviling, none of that. Suffered. Wrong and sin equals punishment. Look around this world, that's a hard one to grapple with, isn't it? Because we don't see it. And they go round and round and they try to get to the question of why is Job suffering? And you and I grapple with why is Job suffering? We ask the question, is God just? Yes, he is. But then because of wrong assumptions, then we assume that God is ruling and running this world based on justice. Absolute justice. You do wrong, God punishes. Bam! You do right, God blesses. Woohoo! Right? That's a wrong assumption. It's a dangerous assumption. But that's the assumption that their friend, his friends are going off of. Job is receiving this, so he must have done something wrong. He must have sinned. They didn't get chapters 1 and 2, those conversations that you and I are privy to. And their logic turns God into a karma God. How small does your God have to be if you can manipulate him like that? And their assumption is Job has sinned. Job is being punished by God for something that he's done. And they try to determine what this is. With no basis for any of their statements. Don't be that friend. And then there's Job. Your heart has to just bleed for Job. Throughout the book, he's declaring his innocence. He's saying that his suffering cannot be justice because he has not sinned. He hasn't done anything to deserve this. So God must be ruling the world, running the world on some other basis other than justice. And the argument goes around and around. Or, 
God's just not just. And we know that's not true. Job makes some amazing statements about God. Throughout, he maintains his innocence, but in his innocence, he, in his pleading and his declaration, he allows pride to slip in. And pride comes into his heart, and, and when that happens, he demands a presence before God. He demands that God give an account. Look at verse 35 of chapter 31. I tell you what, these arguments are fascinating to read, but listen to this. Finally, Job in his final argument says this, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Listen! Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written. He's demanding God give him a voice. Give him an answer. God, I want an answer and I want it now. In our pain and suffering, we can come to that point where we're like, God, enough! I just want to know why, God. Just want to know why. Elihu comes to the scene. We don't know much about this man. We know several things. Elihu is, is younger. And so he's remained silent this whole time. But he's been there. He's listened to him because he quotes what they've been saying. And he's angry at Job's friends. He says, my goodness, you guys have accused him of wrongdoing with no basis. He's ticked off at them. And then he turns to Job and he's angry at Job. It's like, Job, how dare you seek to justify yourself and accuse God? And he cautioned. There's a caution there for you and I too. We should never defend ourselves in such a way that we begin in our hearts and our minds, our struggles and emotions to accuse God. But then God speaks. He speaks from some type of a whirlwind. I don't know what that looks like. Whirlwind is like a tornado. That would be terrifying in and of itself. And then to have God speak from it. Oh my. But Job called for it, and God's going to give it. Look at chapter 38. This is absolutely amazing. If you, if you read no other chapters, read 38 to the end of the book. It's powerful. I encourage you to read the whole book, but those for sure. God says this in the first four verses. Imagine a whirlwind speaking like this then the lord said to job wait i'm not in the right one nope that's 40 okay 38 verse 1 there we are now we're in the right one then the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge now gird up your loins like a man i will ask you and you instruct me 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's quite a way to start in a, a conversation, isn't it? And God goes on and he begins to describe himself and ask questions of these men and ask questions of Job. Look at just a few of these questions. Sound booth, you're going to have to stay with me here, okay? Look at verse 12. It says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Wow. How many of you have done that? Yeah, I haven't done that lately either. Look at verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? I'm just amazed to look at the stars. God's saying, do you move them? Tell me, men. Tell me, Job. 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that the abundance of water will cover you? Boy, if I could, I'd do it now for us right now. We're dry. But God just lifts his voice. And it drenches rain. He goes and gives examples of nature. Look at a few of these examples in chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know the time... Mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? God's aware of it all. Bump over to verse 19. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that hawks soar? Stretching his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? Do you do this, Job? Do you do this, friends? Do you do this, church? God is giving a picture of himself saying, I command all of these things. How about you? Answer me, Job. So Job, in his haste, decides to answer God. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Boy, he said a whole lot more than I would even say. We see here that Job is humbled. But we don't see a repentant heart. God answers him right away. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder 
with a voice like his. That's why I think God's a bass, by the way. God says, really? Really, Job? And as we, as we look at this, he, he goes through in the next chapter and he begins to describe himself by looking at two majestic creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. Both creatures very, very respected and feared by people of Job's day. And God says, I control them. I created them. They listen to me. You mess with Leviathan, you will not forget that encounter. But I control them. And as Job listens, he begins to see, as we look at this book of Job, we begin to see that God is sovereign. You and I serve a sovereign God and as we look at the pages of, of Job, we are never given the answer to why. It's beyond your grasp and mine. But we get a big picture of our God. Our God and our concept of God is bigger and bigger. As it should be. God's working on a scale grander than you and I can even imagine. The pain and suffering that we go through, that Job went through, is so localized. Yet God is working on a much grander platform, and He never ceases to be in control. Remember Romans last week, that God works all things for His good, but not all things are good, church. But he works them for his good. As Job's picture of God gets bigger and bigger, his concept of God, and he sees this sovereign God, he answers one more time. Chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here now I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. See, we can be humbled before God without repentance, but we cannot repent without being humble. We have to allow God to be great and ourselves to be small. And Job here repents. In the final chapter, God <coughs> scolds the three friends. In fact, he says, everything you said was wrong. 
what Job said was right. It's interesting, Job accused God, but the, the arguments that Job was making were right. God says to the three friends, you better have Job pray for you because I'll listen to Job. I'm not going to listen to you. To summarize, boy, I struggled summarizing this book. Why? Why do good people go through suffering? Why do good people feel pain and heartache and anguish? The short answer is sin. You and I live in a sin-tarnished world. And not necessarily for your sin or my sin, but sin has, has destroyed this world. But we need to realize that why may not be the question we need to ask. When we're going through suffering, is your God big enough? Is your God strong enough to carry you through? you trust that he truly is in control see as we go through Job the answer to why is never answered but we are given the answer of who God is his majesty his might his power Hebrews or sorry Job 19 says this Job in his pleading in his debates his cries says this in chapter 19 verse 25 as for me I know that my redeemer lives and that last he will take his stand on the earth Job looked to a redeemer. In Hebrews we read this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, the answer is Jesus We, we serve a high priest. We have a redeemer. And it's Jesus. And he knows. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows sorrow. He's walked where you and I have walked. He has gone through those hardships. Our suffering pain, we need to stop looking to the why. This side of heaven, we may never know. But rather, you and I need to begin to look to the who. Who is it that you're going to go to? 
When we look at our great God, when we look at the pages of Job and see God, all you and I can do is stand in awe of this one that we worship.